Want to know what strategies real graduates use to launch their career? Well, here's your chance. From personal stories to insider tips, our interviews with graduates and campus recruiters will equip you with the knowledge and inspiration you need to take off and stand out from the crowd. Brought to you by Prospel, your one-stop shop for finding and securing your dream internship or fresh graduate job. So could you give us your background story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Rebecca. Um, I currently live in Adelaide, Australia. I am originally from Canada, from Toronto specifically. Um, I've been over in Australia for just shy of four years. Uh, um, and I work as the head of content now with a company called Insider Guides, which is a content-based and media business um, based here in Adelaide. We mainly operate within the international education uh, sector. So we create content that is largely targeted towards international students um, in Australia, international students who are thinking of coming over to Australia and kind of want to learn more about what to expect from life here and kind of how the education system works and all of that good stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of responsible for overseeing all of the content that we produce and kind of, um, you know, streamlining our strategic um, operations in terms of the content that we put out there and um, refining our content pillars and, and all of that good stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and so did you, you attended, you were originally an international student or like an exchange student. Um, and then you moved back or was it that you you stayed in Australia the whole time so that's correct the first uh the first description is correct yeah so I actually when I was doing my undergrad I um, moved to Sydney and I did a semester abroad at the University of Sydney so I was living there for about five six months um that was back in 2017 and I just loved Australia so much that I decided to move back after I finished my undergrad back in Canada. So I moved back at the end of 2019. So about two years later. And uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. So yeah, my journey in Australia essentially started as a sort of study abroad international exchange student and has now become, you know, working as a young professional in Australia. So yeah. Wow. So you're actually quite different from some of the other internationals I've spoken to who like did, I think, uh, undergrad or master's, and then they jumped straight into work. Um, so in that case, you probably didn't have the advantage of having a post-study work visa. Um, wow. So you just jumped straight, you just moved back to Australia and then you you found a job like just like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so more or less. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say it was just like that necessarily. <laughs> that makes it sound like I snapped my fingers and it was just there waiting for me. So as you said, I didn't have the advantage of doing a degree over here in Australia and then going right on to the, the temporary graduate, the 485 visa, which is the pathway for a lot of international students. Um, I did things a little bit differently where I only did a semester here, went back to Canada, finished my degree, and then I moved over on a 417 visa, which is the working holiday visa. So I did that and I came over uh, by myself and uh, I didn't really have too many connections um, that were still here. A lot of the people that I met when I was in Australia the first time around were also international students who had since gone home. So I was starting from scratch all over again and I moved over here by myself and I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have an apartment lined up. I didn't have any of that. I just said that I would figure it out once I got over here. And um, that's more or less what I did. <laughs> 
That's crazy. Um, are you still on the working holiday visa or does maybe walk us through your evolving legal status in Australia? Sure, I can definitely do that. Um, so yeah, it's been a, a an all over the place history. Um, so I did come over on a working holiday visa. Um, I was on a working holidays working holiday visa for three years. So for people who maybe aren't familiar with the working holiday system in Australia, um, it, it lasts for one year. And then in order to extend into a second and a third year, you need to go and do regional work, which often is uh, farm work in Australia. So it can be uh, working on a farm, working with livestock. It can be fruit picking, fruit packing. Um, they've since extended it. So now it can be hospitality work and things like that. Construction is another one, but you need to go and live out in regional and rural remote areas in Australia. Um, so I did that. I did two rounds of that kind of work to extend my visa both times. Yes. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. Was um, that I did farm work? Oh, sorry. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I did it, I was uh, doing strawberry picking. So I did that for three months to get my second year visa. And then to get my third year visa, I worked as a farm hand for a family that kind of had their own, their own farm in uh, remote New South Wales. So I helped them with like their, their livestock and, um, you know, picking up equipment and just things like that, just being a farmhand for them. And I uh, did that for six months and that got me my third year visa. <laughs> and um, in between these stints of doing remote regional work, I was also doing some freelance writing here and there sporadically for insider guides <laughs> at the time, actually. And so when the time came that I was finishing up my regional work, my six months of regional work, um, they connected with me and said, look, you know, there's an opportunity to join the team full time. Um, we've been really happy with your freelancing work that you've done for us. If you're open to it, then there is a role and we'd like to discuss it further with you. And so I ended up coming on board full time and moving to Adelaide for that job. And I worked with them for the first little while that I was on that third working holiday visa and they ended up sponsoring me. So we brought me on to a um, 482 visa, the subclass 482, which is a temporary skilled shortage visa. So that is the one that I'm on currently. And uh, just back in February, uh, my partner and I actually applied for PR. So we are very close to being permanent residents here in Australia. And um, yeah, fingers crossed that comes through in the next few weeks, couple of months. That's the hope. But yeah, we're still just waiting at this stage. What would you say has been the trickiest part of dealing with all these like visa changes and stuff? Um, I think for me personally, the sort of um, feeling that your life is constantly in this state of limbo in, in a way, and you never have that 100% assurance that you're going to be allowed to stay long term, you know, past the expiry date of, of your visa, whichever visa that may be, um, and not having the everyday um, not rights. I still have like my human rights, obviously, over here in Australia, but, you know, not being able to get, um, you know, a car loan out if I wanted to, to go and get a car or, um, you know, not being able to vote, not being able to just do certain things that 
Australian residents and citizens can do and just having those limitations on just day-to-day life and certain elements of day-to-day life, I think has been really challenging. And also just trying to plan for the future is really hard when you don't know for sure if, you know, your future in the place that you now call home or your home away from home is going to be guaranteed. And so, you know, my partner and I have both kind of struggled with that a bit because he's not from here either. He's actually Irish. So that's been something that we've struggled to to do is to plan our future together in Australia and figure out where we want to be long term and and what we want to be doing and things like that. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit hard when you have a visa that's expiring in you know six months or twelve months or whatever it may be. So I think that's probably been the trickiest thing to navigate for me personally. I see. So it's more like the sort of sort of the lack of stability and the sort of kind of a lot of pressures you have in everyday life like that results from that um interesting can yeah I, yeah can I, yeah can I ask like how difficult it is to qualify for like you mentioned the temporary skilled visa and then now PR mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so it is a complex system um so for the temporary skilled shortage visa you basically, you need to be working in a job that is on the skilled occupation list. So that is a long list. I think there's over hundred jobs on it. Um, so you need to be working in a profession that is on that list because that's basically the list of occupations that Australia is in demand of. Like they need more professionals working in these spaces. Um, so you need to be working in a job that's on that list. And the requirements of the criteria differ between different occupations. For example, my occupation, as it's stated on the list, is copywriter. And the criteria and requirements are going to be different than, say, you know, an accountant or, you know, a software engineer. It kind of the specific requirements, they do vary a bit job to job. And they also can vary between um, locations as well. So depending on which kind of state or territory you're applying for your visa within, that can play a role sometimes, at least when you get to PR for certain visas, that does play a role. Um, So for me, particularly like applying for the 482 visa, there are so many steps to follow and so much documentation that goes into it. And so I needed to do a skills assessment, which again, depending on your profession, it might be a practical assessment where someone actually comes from the government to your job and they oversee you doing your job and performing kind of daily tasks to make sure that you are qualified and equipped to perform that job and to perform it appropriately. Um, Whereas if you work more of like a desk job or an administrative kind of job, then you have to provide a lot of documentation to prove that you have, you know, X years of experience under your belt, that you have a degree in a relevant field that allows you to work in that sector. So things like that. So you have to do a skills assessment. You have to yeah, provide lots of proof of your work experience previously, um, you know, be it here in Australia or offshore from your home country or wherever else. Um, so, yeah, that has sort of that's a, a, a lengthy process. And then when you apply for PR, it gets even more convoluted, <laughs> in a sense, which I guess makes sense. But um, PR, um, it, it 
most of the time, it depends which kind of visa you're going for. And I'm not a, an expert by any means, but to my understanding, they are all points-based here in Australia. So to apply for these permanent residency visa streams, you basically need to be able to prove on the points system that you can score a minimum of 65 points or more. And the more points you have, the stronger your application is in theory. And so points basically get chalked up to different things. It gets chalked up to um, your English language skills, your level of experience in your you know, given industry or sector, um, your age is another one. So various things get taken into consideration. And that is what calculates how many points that you get. And then you have to, again, upload all of that documentation to prove how many points you can get. Um, in some cases, and in my case specifically, you may need to be sponsored by a state or territory or by an employer in order to, to be eligible to apply for whichever visa subclass that you're going for. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of moving parts <laughs> involved um, and a lot to take into consideration. And I'm not an expert by any means, but that's just at a quick glance without boring you too much <laughs> with what some of the, the factors are. Wow, that sounds super tricky to navigate. <laughs> Where do you find like all this information and or like are there any resources that you use or any like people you ask for help? Yeah, so all of this information is available on the Department of Home Affairs website, um, which is, you know, the immigration website uh, for Australia. But as I'm sure many of us know, things aren't always the easiest to understand on government websites. So I definitely found that to be the case. And I uh, was very lucky, actually, that um, I, I had a, you know, a sit-down chat with a migration agent um, who are the, the registered experts in navigating all of these complexities of you know, PR and visa applications and things like that. So I did sit down with someone for about an hour just to lay everything out and get an understanding of how exactly it all works. And um, so I did all of the application stuff myself and all of the, you know, compiling of the documentation and uploading it to the portal and all of that, that I did myself, but just having that preliminary chat with someone who's an expert and can give me that sort of formulaic approach of like, this is exactly what you need to do. This is what's going to get you to where you want to go the quickest um, was extremely helpful. She was super knowledgeable and, and I couldn't recommend doing that enough. Um, so yeah, that was that was a huge help. Um, and then yeah, using the uh, the information and the knowledge that that she gave me, I was able to just run for it and um, and do it all myself. But again, that is a very time consuming, tedious process, and you know, not everyone might have the time to do that, which is absolutely fair enough. And so if if you have the resources and the means to recruit a migration agent's help with that every step of the way, it's absolutely something to consider for sure. Got it. And I imagine it must have been extremely helpful because you were on these limited like six month, 12 month visas. So if you didn't get it done by a certain time, you'd have to leave and come back and stuff like that. 
that's absolutely a consideration. Um, you know, it was for me being on a temporary visa, as you point out. And the other thing too, is that, you know, migration laws are constantly updating. The rules are constantly being updated. You know, the skilled occupation list that I mentioned before that like of eligible occupations for PR and skilled visas, that's constantly being updated with new jobs and new roles that are eligible for that. So it's, really helpful to have someone who just has their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the migration sector. Because again, like if you're if you're not in it every day, it's so hard to keep track of what's going on, what's changing, how it affects you. And yeah, just having that peace of mind of knowing that I had someone on my side and in my corner who knew exactly what was going on was invaluable. That makes so much sense. <laughs> wow. Um, and so you mentioned while you were on those holiday working holiday visas, uh, you were able to pick up some like freelance writing jobs. Um, mm-hmm. Could you share like how you heard about these jobs? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually was just I hadn't really done any freelance writing before, but I had always enjoyed writing. And um, you know, my degree was in communications, and so I had done a lot of writing in my in my undergraduate degree. And I just wanted to get my feet wet more in that industry. Um, So I actually went on LinkedIn and literally just typed in freelance writing or freelance writer into the uh, the search function. And um, I saw this posting from Insider Guides that they were looking for freelance writers and that they were a business that um, operated in the international education space and that they created content for international students in Australia. And full transparency, I had not heard of them during my time here as an international student a couple of years prior. Um, But I just thought, what a great fit. You know, that was how my whole journey in Australia had started in the first place. I had lived experience as an international student in Australia. And so I knew firsthand some of the questions and experiences and challenges that came with that whole journey. And so I basically just, yeah, read the description and, um, you know, uploaded my cover letter, uploaded my resume and sent it off for consideration and ended up hearing back. And the rest is history, really. Yeah. That's awesome. You always hear about people like mass applying to stuff and then not hearing back. But it seems like you literally sent out your resume, like cover letter and and they, they got back. So it does work. <laughs> It does. It absolutely works. And again, I think um, I I don't know for sure, but I think one of the things that probably helped me hear back was, again, just tailoring that cover letter to address why I would be such a great fit for the role and why they would be crazy not to give me a chance, basically, <laughs> really. And, and again, it was just it was highlighting that firsthand experience of being an international student in Australia. And and again, leveraging that and just saying, you know, I have insights that maybe you might not have if you, if you're a largely like Australian team, like here's that gap that I can fill. So it ended up working out. (laughs) And they sponsored you. So it's exactly, and you know, the rest is history and here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. And I guess, did you encounter any difficulties like being an international like when while you were applying for jobs and stuff um applying for other jobs yes when I first arrived in Australia and I was applying for for jobs absolutely it was a hurdle 
um, you know, not only is it a hurdle because you only have, you know, 12 months on your visa and a lot of these contracts are 12 month contracts. And so it's a bit tricky if you can't fulfill the entire contract because your visa won't allow you to do. But I think something that I have encountered, and I know a lot of other people who are expats have encountered uh, this same thing is that I think a lot of employers see you as having an expiration date because your visa has an expiration date. And I think a lot of employers are also not very familiar with migration, with visas, with, um, you know, options or opportunities to extend visas or, you know, various things like that. I think it's just such uncharted territory for so many employers and organizations. And oftentimes fear of the unknown is very powerful and it's enough for people to just steer clear of you altogether. And unfortunately, that is sometimes quite common, um, but it's not always the case. And I think if you are the right candidate and you're able to sell yourself in a way that is really compelling and you're able to do your own research into the migration system and opportunities to extend and stay longer, and fill that gap that an employer or an organization might have and really guide them and take that initiative yourself into how you can make it work collaboratively. I think there are a lot of opportunities there and there are a lot of employers that will take you on board and that will go through the process. And again, I'm living proof of that, you know, insider guides had never sponsored anyone from overseas previously, but I did the research and I walked them through like what the process would entail and and, and, you know, made my case. And, and I think there's absolutely opportunities for other people to do the same. So in a way, if you're an international applying to a company in Australia, do you think it's helpful to lay out the process for them and be like, this, I, you know, I know generally how it goes and it won't be too much trouble for you guys? Is, it, is that like maybe mm-hmm. a strategy that internationals could use? I think it is. Absolutely. And again, that was the strategy that I utilized was taking it upon myself. And I'll I'll concede that it's maybe not necessarily the most fair thing in the world that people who are from international backgrounds necessarily have to take on that extra burden themselves. Um, But I think it can be useful. And I think it can be a means to an end. And I, I think it ultimately it, it can work or I, I know it can work because that, as I mentioned, yeah, it was the exact approach that I used with Insider Guides was I was coming to a point where I had eight-ish months left on my on my visa and I was saying to them like, look, it's it, time is going to come where we need to have this conversation of if this is something that you're willing to explore, um, a sponsorship with me. And um, here's why I think it is something that you should explore and not showboating, but like making a case for why and how you are integral to the team and maybe your achievements thus far, if you've been previously working with them in some capacity, whether it's freelancing or you've been given a part-time gig or whatever it may be. Um, And then just walking them through it and being like, look, it's actually not that big and bad and scary to sponsor someone. This is the first step. And then this is what happens next. And then once you get this approval, then we'll do this. And then we wait however many weeks and then we'll get an approval and it'll be done. And that's it. So I think, yeah, just kind of knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. And again, I think when it's something 
that you want ultimately. And the sponsorship is, it's mutually beneficial, absolutely, because you're bringing your skills, your experience, your perspective to the employer, and that is invaluable to them. But of course, it's beneficial to you as well, because you get to stay more long-term in Australia and continue living this lifestyle that you want to continue living. Um, so yeah, I think if you're willing to do that research and arm yourself with that knowledge and share it with your employer, it can absolutely work to your advantage. That's actually really smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think because it really is just the fear of the unknown. And it's, it's you know, it, it's nothing, it's nothing else, really. Sometimes people are just worried about how long something will take, how expensive it might be. Um, and oftentimes, and I'm certainly not saying this about my employer, do not take me out of context. <laughs> but a lot of people are lazy and don't, and don't necessarily want to take on an extra burden of, of research or responsibility. And again, yeah, doing all of that research is tedious and it is time consuming. And so I fully understand why people aren't necessarily jumping to take on that extra workload. So sometimes it ultimately does have to be you if you want that sponsorship. Mm, that's really good advice, actually. Um, you also mentioned that it might be expensive. Um, was there any way that you made the case that you're like, look, I, I'm worth it? Um. <laughs> that, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, I think, I think the cost thing was one of my biggest reservations in wanting to ask for sponsorship. To I, I don't even remember what the exact cost was um, for the organization. But it's maybe it's maybe a, a couple thousand or a few thousand dollars from the organization. And there are certain um, costs that need to be paid by the organization. And then there are certain costs that can be paid by the candidate, which I think is the um, like the actual visa application cost for the candidate. Because there are a few things that you need to apply for before you can even apply for the visa. And those all need to be paid for by the organization. But I think the actual visa application can be paid for by the candidate. Um, my work was was fantastic and they covered all of the associated costs. Um, and yeah, I think it ends up being, you know, a couple thousand or a few thousand um, roughly. And I think my advice in terms of, uh, you know, for anyone who might be who might have reservations about asking for sponsorship would just be, I think, to consider, again, the value add that you bring to the organization. And to also consider the fact that hiring and recruitment and those practices of potentially finding a replacement for you if you were to depart after your visa expired, those processes are extremely time consuming and tedious and difficult. It's it's hard to find the right fit for an organization a lot of the time. Um, and it's also expensive. You know, all of that time, it's, it's billable hours that take away from other operations, other task work, other things like that. You know, if you're putting up job ads on Seek, if you're putting up job ads like on different platforms, that's a couple hundred bucks per job ad usually. So that is another cost that you're incurring. Training someone new is also time consuming and expensive. And 
Yeah, it's it, there are costs associated with the alternative as well. And again, you run the risk of potentially losing a really great staff member who has been so integral to the team and potentially bringing someone on board who maybe isn't as good of a fit, who maybe doesn't mesh with the team as well, who maybe isn't as efficient, whatever the case may be. And so, it's, yeah, assessing that kind of cost and reward and... I think just really backing yourself as well um, in terms of what you do bring to the team. Um, I think that's crucial. And I think also just having um, some perspective. I think for me in particular, when I was thinking about, you know, the, the money that was associated with that visa, I was thinking about it from the standpoint of, you know, a 25-year-old's who isn't necessarily like rolling in cash and whatever. Whereas you think about that from an organizational standpoint of, you know, how much revenue roughly they bring in a year, in a financial year. And then you weigh out that money, that investment in that visa. It's a drop in the bucket, <laughs> more or less. And when it comes to employee retainment, if your employer is is worth anything, they will understand the importance of employee retention and they will do everything to retain you if you are a good, strong worker. Can I ask, so how did you make the case for yourself specifically? Did you did you bring up, like you mentioned, um, you know, the revenue that you bring in and, and specifics like that? Or was it, yeah, what? how did that conversation go? So I don't think I necessarily had um, specific examples of revenue that I was necessarily bringing in per se, just because that's not exactly a part of like my job description isn't like really sales or anything like that. But what I had been doing in the months in the lead up to having that conversation with them was keeping a record of all of the positive feedback that I had received internally and externally. And this would be a huge piece of advice for anyone who is potentially thinking about doing the same is keep a little um, folder in your inbox or like a folder on your desktop, whatever it may be, of just screenshots of positive feedback or reinforcement that you're getting either from like your teammates internally, from clients. Um, if I had pitched an article and I had written the article and creation from the ideation process through its development to it going live on the website. And then it was, you know, one of our top performers in terms of organic traffic and bringing more people onto the website and expanding our reach and our audience. Take a screenshot of that and say, you know, this article got like 30,000 views this month or page views this month. And that was that was my idea. That was my pitch. And I wrote it and I oversaw it, the whole thing. And that brought, you know, that got us 30,000 views that month. That's a huge win and a huge asset. And, and again, having those measurable metrics, if it's possible, is huge. And, and again, it, it might not be the type of thing where you can say, I brought in X amount of dollars last month or, or something like that. Maybe revenue isn't the metric that you're able to track depending on what your role is, but there are other metrics that you can track, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. And so, yeah, I was taking screenshots of just like little achievements here and there through the months 
Um, even if it was just like a Slack message of someone just saying, you did a really great job on this. Thank you so much for your help. It's just proof that you're doing a good job, that you are, it's being verbalized by other people around you, that they see that you're doing a good job and you are making their life easier and that you're just creating this organizational flow where everything is meshing, everything is working, things are ticking along. And that, again, having been in this sort of full-time working environment where I manage people and I also have, you know, internal colleagues as well that I have to, to work with, having someone that can do that is a huge asset. So again, I think it would just be focusing on the qualitative and the quantitative things that you bring to the table and just keeping a record of them and then bringing them to that conversation and just saying, look, look at everything I've achieved in my three months or my six months or whatever that I've been here. And you don't want to lose this, do you? This is going so well. This is great for both of us. Why don't we keep this going and keep this momentum going? Because if this is what I've done in you know the first three or six months, imagine what I could do a year from now. Can I ask how you broached this topic um, and how do you sell yourself? Uh, I know some people are always like, oh, I, I don't want to brag, but how do you, how do you balance that delicately? It seems like you like, you're quite good at it. So <laughs> would love to get your thoughts. Oh. <laughs> I hope um, it's coming across that I'm good at walking that line and that I'm not just bragging left and center. Um I think, and look, I, I'm very sensitive to that problem and, and trying to walk that very fine line of not coming off that you're full of yourself and, and you think you're God's gift to the earth, or but without also selling yourself short. Um, it's a tricky balance to strike. I think a good way to avoid sounding too you know, full of yourself is to focus on the facts. And that's, I think, also the role that kind of keeping those screenshots of the analytics, those screenshots of the positive Slack messages, those screenshots of an, an email from a client that's really happy with something that you did, because that's not being arrogant. You're just looking at the facts. So I think that plays a huge role in walking that line too, um, where you can't argue with facts. So it's not you having this feeling that you're um, this like amazing asset to the team. It's that the proof is in the pudding and that you are an amazing asset to the team. Um, so I think that was the messaging that I was trying to relay to myself in the lead up to that conversation. And in terms of how I broached it with my employers specifically, um, I was very transparent with them from the jump when they hired me that I have this amount of time left on my visa. So we are going to need to talk about this at, at least three, four months from now, like maybe we can schedule a time. And so they were very receptive to that. And then when the time came around, I just sent them a meeting invite. And I said, look, as we discussed when I first came on board, the time has now come where we need to start thinking about the future a little bit. So again, I think that's another piece of advice. Be really transparent from the jump as much as you can be. And uh, that way everyone is on the same page right from day one and um, everyone knows what to expect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I feel like I could keep asking questions about this, but then I wouldn't get to any other yeah. topic. <laughs> uh, let's go for something lighter. So I guess, did you experience any culture shock in Australia or anything that surprised you, uh, especially, especially during your time working there? 
Yes. Um, I would say that maybe my um, experiences of culture shock were not as severe as maybe people from other cultures would experience, perhaps. Um, I think Canadians and Australians are very similar in a number of ways. Um, we're all pretty easygoing, laid back. Um, the hierarchical um, power structure within the workplaces is relatively similar. It's all pretty chill um, on the whole. So I think in that sense, I kind of knew what to expect to a certain degree. Um, but I think there were just other things. Um, language is a big one. I swear I like still to this day, four years into the experience, learn a new like phrase or word every week. Like they just come completely out of left field with something like squiz, for example. Can you take a squiz at this? I'll say, what are you talking about? And that means, can you have a look, a quick look at something? So we, being that we read a lot of articles, we're editing a lot, that one gets thrown into the mix a lot. And I had no idea <laughs> what it meant. Um, so yeah, I think the vernacular has taken some getting used to for sure. And I think also just to an extent of uh, the style of communication is, is very different in Australia than it is in Canada. I think in Canada, we tend to beat around the bush a lot. And I think it's in an attempt to be really polite and we dance around what it is we're actually trying to say or what we're trying to ask for. Whereas Australians will ask you straight up what it is they need. They will tell you straight up what is or what isn't working. Like they're very direct. And that has also taken some getting used to. And again, they never mean to be malicious or unkind with it. It's just, they are very to the point, sometimes to the point that it can come across a bit jarring <laughs> sometimes. So I think those are a couple of um, elements of culture shock that even now, sometimes I'm still getting used to a little bit. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of squiz. <laughs> Is there anything you regret or anything like if you had a second chance you would redo uh, about your time in Australia? Wow. Um, I like that you said we'll keep it light and now you're asking about my life regrets. <laughs> oh, that's a big one. Um, I I don't think so. I It sounds so cliche, but if I had done one thing differently then everything could be different. Mm. And I really like my life and I really like my job and I really like the people that I'm surrounded with. Um, and I'm proud of how far I've come in my time in Australia. Like I moved over here less than four years ago with two suitcases and not a clue, <laughs> really. <laughs> and, and now I have a great apartment that I love and I have a, a partner who I've been with for two and a half years and I have a, a job that I really enjoy that allows me to be creative and offers me flexibility and um and I'm living in the country that I've wanted to live in since I was first here six years ago um so I, yeah I, I don't think I have any regrets and I don't I don't spend a whole lot of time looking back or or thinking retrospectively uh, about what could I have done differently? Because I, 
I don't think I, even if I did make a wrong turn, it doesn't feel like I made a wrong turn. Um, and I think that's ultimately all that matters. I've, I've been in the situation of dwelling on the past mm. before <laughs> and it just doesn't get you anywhere. So I find in my experience better to look forward. So that's what, what I'm trying to do.